welcome to Macintosh and Mod. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watch Some Like It Hot. After two male musicians witness a mob hit, they flee the state in an all-female band disguised as women. But further complications set in. Oh, a classic. A classic film. This is fun. Man, this movie. Yeah, this is great. You... Always brace yourself with a movie about men in drag from the 50s. Mm-hmm. But this is proof that even then you could get it right. Oh, yeah. Like, this is fun. I really, I really like this. I just, it's, it's an incredibly funny fucking comedy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's rightfully listed up there with the greatest comedies of all time. And I mean, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they don't play up the dragness of it. They play it far more like a Tootsie, where it's how convincingly can these dudes pass themselves off as women? And what complications are they going to create in their real life because of this? Specifically one of the characters. Oh, yes, for sure. (laughs) There's got to be one. One of the characters is very much going to have a full crisis of identity. I mean, fair. And it's amazing. Mm-hmm. I haven't only seen this movie before. I believe before I ever saw the film, I saw a musical version of this. Mm-hmm. The very fun fact about that is I saw it on tour and touring with it was none other than Tony Curtis playing a different role. Okay. And he was fantastic. Cool. So I've seen this story several different times. And I will say, this was during my preteen to teen phase of, I'm going to see musicals and I hate musicals. And this one got me very quickly. Mm, I do like that. Because it's a really good story. Yeah, I mean, I kept thinking that this one was, uh, like it kept reminding me of Bosom Buddies. It, it does. It's also, there's some notes from the trivia about how the script was developed, but... One of the big key things here is that Billy has finally found a new full-time collaborator. Mm -hmm. And I think this being their first movie together, it shows instantly that they have some chemistry. He's writing with the man who he's going to write the apartment with. Yes. So, like, we are on the second emergence of Billy's career here. Okay. Not that his middle movies have been bad by any means. But that he's this marks a very big shift in the types of movies he makes, mm-hmm. and it feels like the two complement each other in a really good way. Okay, and it helps that you know they're going to continue to collaborate for the rest of their time. So I think he finally found somebody who had enough of a similar voice to what he wanted to do, just like his earlier co-writer on you know everything up through Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. That just like it works, everything works. It's clicking. Yeah. And especially for this one, the the writing stands out in such a huge way. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like this one, like, I think they did a good job. And it, yeah, it does remind a little bit of Tootsie, too, in that it's really just like these guys aren't trying to, to do anything untoward. It's just we're in a shitty situation. This is our best option. Oh, well, OK, <laughs> like this is a different world. It's like a whole nother sex. Look at that. Look she moves. That's just like jello on springs. Must have some sort of built-in motor or something. I, I tell you, it's a whole different sex. What are you afraid of? Nobody's asking you to have a baby. The budget for this film was $2.9 million. That's roughly $29 million in today's money. Mm-hmm. So it's not an, it's a $30 million movie. Nothing to sneeze at. It made $49 million. That's $499 million today. Mm. For a comedy of this size to do that kind of box office, like them's them summer blockbuster numbers, mm-hmm. this was a smash success. And it has stood the test of time on a lot of different lists. In a poll of 253 film critics from 52 countries done by the BBC in 2017, this again stood up as the best comedy of all time. It is number one on AFI's 100 Funniest Movies of All Time. It's 22nd on the 100 Greatest Films of All Time. Mm-hmm. Premiere named it number 18 on the 50 Funniest Movies of All Time. It's considered 
one of the greatest comedies ever put on film. I mean, I can't fault them. I would probably hedge it a little bit in that it's one of the best written comedies ever on film. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I would put it up there visually, although I feel like we might have had a really kind of shitty transfer that we were watching. I don't know that the quality that we had screening this was as good as like when I watched it on DVD. Mm-hmm. But regardless, it it is not only was successful in its time, it has continued to stay successful. And I feel like a whole lot of that just has to do with the really great writing that was put into the film. Yeah, there's not much I can point to and be like, that doesn't hold up or like, that's just the worst because they really thread that needle it's it's good it's good it's fun i think you could easily remake this today and and still be able to pull this story off because the jokes aren't at the expense of them being in drag the jokes are of the utter chaos that they have placed themselves into because they don't know how to act (laughs) well there's there's that it's it's really it's not so much that they're in drag, it's that they're somebody else. They're pretending to be someone else. And I think one of the things that they do that actually actually helps with that is when Joe pretends to be the millionaire. So now he's like pretending to be two different people uh-huh. and it's it's messing things up. And I think that helps soften the blow against like, well, they're just they're just dressing as ladies to get away with something. And then they're exploiting that because now they have information on how the ladies work. But it's really more they've learned things about these women. And it's like, oh, I want to be um, like, I want to I want to be friends with you and then like have an actual relationship. It's not purely exploitive. It's just part of that is their own insecurities about who they are. The joke is about these two guys. Yeah, it's not about any it's not about the concept of a guy being in drag the it's about these two guys specifically doing it Mm -hmm. Uh, according to jack lemon the initial preview had a terrible reaction a number of people walked out no personnel and agents were all giving note after note of what billy wilder would need to cut or alter and lemon worried goes up to billy wilder and is just like so what are you gonna do and billy said why nothing this is a very funny movie, and I believe in it just as it is. Maybe this is the wrong neighborhood in which to have shown it. At any rate, I don't panic over one preview. It's a hell of a movie. Unquote. All right. The man didn't give a shit. And he was proven right. At the next preview, they held it at Westwood near Los Angeles, and the audience stood and cheered. <laughs> I like that. Uh, it was not without its cost. Filming started on June 1st, 1958. It did not end until November 5th of that same year. So this is a five-month shoot for this comedy. Hmm. That means it went two months over schedule and 500000 or $5 million in that money over budget. Okay. And there's a significant reason for that that we will get into later. But okay. we are going to start off with our writing. Okay. First of all, we have a suggested by a story by credit. Okay. Which is a little bit weird to give, but... um. Two gentlemen named Robert Thuren and Michael Logan. These two had worked on a 1935 French film called Fanfare of Love. And then that film was remade in 1951 in Germany. Okay. So this story was not new. It had already been put on film, but it hadn't been done in America. Right, Rightfully so, because, well, censorship standards wouldn't let us do a movie like this for mm-hmm. a long time. One of the actors of the 1951 version, Georg Tomala, did the German dub for Jerry Daphne in this version. Mm-hmm. Just a fun fact. Then we have our screenplay. So we have Billy, and we have his new collaborator who is going to work with him throughout the rest of his career. And this gentleman's name is I.A.L. Diamond. Before this, Diamond wrote Murder in the Blue Room, Never Say Goodbye, Two Guys from Texas, Love Nest, Monkey Business, That Certain Feeling, and Love in the Afternoon. After this, and if you're a Billy Wilder fan, you're going to know some of these, The Apartment, Irma LaDuce, Kiss Me Stupid, The Fortune Cookie, he wrote the 40th Annual Academy Awards, shout out, we watched those for our 67 Oscar series, Cactus Flower, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, Avanti, The Front Page, and Buddy Buddy. What do we think of the writing of this film? Oh, that's awesome. I already have the trivia here, but like a lot of your points about, you know, the specificity, the way they put in these characters, the way they put thoughtfulness into it i feel like both of these guys knew we can't just do a comedy about two guys dressed as women Mm -hmm. because no one's gonna care 
and no one's going to see it. Yeah. Because either they're going to be too hand-wringing over the fact that it's two men dressed as women, or they're just going to think it's stupid. Yeah. And so instead, we get this master class in how do you take a, a premise, try to turn it on its head, and then make that part funny. And you put all the focus, not on the two guys, but on the women. Yeah. Because they spend a whole lot of this movie focusing on the female characters, which is awesome. <laughs> yes. Like, they're actual, like, people. And, like, there, there's a great deal of, like, ooh, she's attractive. She's attractive. It's also, like, gotta, gotta keep my shit in check because I can't let them find out what's going on with me. Yeah, and, and they do... What's interesting is like that that happens with Daphne. Mm -hmm. It's it's Jerry is the one who is the total horn dog the whole time. Mm -hmm. That is setting up what comes later, which is so outstandingly funny and amazing mm -hmm. <laughs> because they make him the man who wants to be with every single one of these beautiful women. Yeah. And then his whole identity gets upended <laughs> and in a really fucking funny and not at all depressing way like it's actually sweet and adorable i mean it helps when you have somebody like jack levin mm -hmm. that that doesn't hurt but i mean there's there's so many extra layers that they piled onto these characters that they really they could have gotten away with not doing it wouldn't be as good a movie but they could have gotten away with just making a serviceable movie without adding all these extra layers and ideas mm -hmm. into it diamond stated he and wilder took a year to develop the script uh, they originally wanted to set it in a contemporary setting, mm -hmm. but the problem they kept running into was they thought there had to be something more than poverty that drove their decision to impersonate women. Okay. So they didn't want to go the bosom buddies route. And I like the fact that Diamond thought instead, if we set it in a period, we can make things easier, which is where they came up with the idea to put it in the jazz age and gangland Chicago. So we get the hit. Okay. The gangster murder is that actual impetus for them to go in and take this job. Yes. That's the brilliant part. Mm -hmm. Because they're desperate. They need money. Mm -hmm. But that's not what drives them to this point where they feel like they have to hide and impersonate. And that's such a smart move because it, it takes away that sort of ickiness factor of, well, they've just got to earn a buck. And, and it's such a trope. And instead, it's like, no, 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 they're going to die if they don't figure a way out of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, like, this is for their lives. It raises the stakes, mm -hmm. so it makes it utterly believable how much they commit to the bit, especially with these two guys who, up until this point, just seem like two schlubs who wouldn't commit to any bit. Like, I think that choice is crucial in setting up the rest of the movie and the intensity with which they can play the rest of the moments. Mm-hmm. All of Joe's supposes in the opening scene while they're playing at the quote-unquote funeral were things that actually came true. Suppose the Dodgers moved from Brooklyn to L.A. They, they did that. Suppose Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks get divorced. Well, they did get divorced. Mm -hmm. Suppose the stock market crashes. It crashed in 1929. In fact, the movie is set just a few months before the stock market crash. That makes Junior's prediction of the marking going up, up, up all the more funny because they know it's going to happen right after. Mm -hmm. Spats is a very clear reference to Al Capone. The gunning down of rival gang members is nearly identical to the 1929 St. Valentine's Day massacre, which was part of Capone's doing. Mm -hmm. Little Bonaparte was a nod to Mussolini, the other bad guy from World War II. The title, I mean, he looks like a dictator. Now that I think about it, I was like, oh, no, yeah, that's definitely a Mussolini dig. It's Billy's way of making fun of Hitler without having to directly make fun of Hitler because Mussolini's more fun to make fun of, especially when you're dealing with Chicago gangsters. <laughs> the title has a double meaning, not just because of the sort of raunchiness or suggestiveness of the story, but also how jazz bands play and interpret music. Some like it hot or improvised, as opposed to, quote, sweet or straight, which is as written. In a previous draft of the film, the train scene did not end with the line, are we in Florida? At that point, the conductor enters and demands to know who pulled the brake. When Jerry confesses, Joe and Sugar in the ladies' room agree to switch beds when Beanstalk keeps making weird noises that keep her from sleeping. Once the conductor leaves and everybody gets in bed, Jerry, in Sugar's bed, confesses how crazy he is for Sugar and that they're in drag, only to find out it's Joe in the bed next to him. 
<laughs> Solid bit, but would have made a, a pretty long film even longer. And finally, the incredible, now famous final line. I'm good. I'm good on level with you. We can't get married at all. Why not? Well, in the first place, I'm not a natural blonde. Doesn't matter. I smoke. I smoke all the time. I don't care. Well, I have a terrible past. For three years now, I've been living with a saxophone player. I forgive you. I can never have children. We can adopt some. But you don't understand, Osgood. Oh, I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. Oh, God, that last bit is just like, it's the best cherry on the Sunday. <laughs> it's the great. It is one of the greatest comedy endings ever. Mm-hmm. It was never intended to make the final cut. It's it was just- a placeholder. It's the perfect button. Diamond and Wilder were both looking for something that they liked better. And it's funny because Diamond and Wilder each credit the other uh, writer for the line. They won't take credit for it. Marilyn Monroe wanted sugar and spats to tango into the sunset. Mm -hmm. And while Wilder liked that idea as a funny bit, he decided instead to end with Osgood and Jerry. Wilder did get the last laugh on the line. His epitaph read, I'm a writer, but then nobody's perfect. We also have a what title could have been better. Hmm. Not tonight, Josephine. Not, uh, no, but it, 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 would, it would have been a funny placeholder. <laughs> oh, God. All right, well, let's talk about our director. It's Billy. It's always Billy. Yep. What do we think of Billy's directing of this movie? Oh, it's perfection. All those bits from Seven Year Itch that we thought were so great. Yeah, he does that here. And then he layers in all of the really great dramatic stuff. I mean, I think there's a lot more physical comedy in this one, but it really plays well. Like, it's not just for laughs. And it's interesting because he plays physical comedy and then he also really just does stage piece comedy mm-hmm. where it's, I mean... Tony Tony Curtis has a masterful face and like a real technical actor's knowledge and Jack Lemmon's a fucking clown. Mm-hmm. But even with Marilyn, again, this comes down to like when we talked about before, I think had Marilyn, you know, had a longer career and, and a longer life, Billy would have been a go to because Billy understood how to film her. Yes. Like Billy knew how to take advantage of everything Marilyn could give a scene. Mm hmm. And so all the stuff with Sugar, it's not as physical comedy because that's not her talent. But they do all these frames on her face. And what I, what's really interesting is like, she's a lot different in this movie. And that's a credit. She, she's different than the girl from Seven Year Itch. Yes. Sugar's a very different character. And we get the most out of her. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that's Billy. A lot of that is Billy knowing how to film her, where to put her when to bring her into the scene and when to make it between the two guys. Yeah. And then, you know, between all of that, just the really beautiful set work of, you know, going between rich white Florida (laughs) and the fucking gangs, the whole funeral setup is one of the greatest set pieces ever. Oh yeah. It's great. Because again, and we talked about it within the first 10 minutes, they're so fucking committed to the joke. Mm Mm-hmm. You could easily just like, once they're in the speakeasy, okay, drop it all. No, it's still the whole funeral bit. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Yeah, it. he's just a really fucking good director. He really is. Preview audiences laughed so hard after the Daphne engagement announcement that a lot of dialogue was missed. Oh. They had to reshoot the scene with pauses and the maracas to allow the audience to laugh. So that they can continue to pick up the lines. And that might be my favorite scene in the whole fucking movie. Mm-hmm. What happened? I'm engaged. Congratulations. Who's the lucky girl? I am. What? Osgood proposed to me. We're planning a June wedding. So funny. I love love him in this movie he's i love him in every movie but especially this one god he's having the most fun 
he is having so much fun, which I, which is just uh, in this type of movie you love to see. <laughs> Billy chose to shoot the resort scenes at the Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego. This was because of, well, some personal issues for one Marilyn Monroe. Mm, okay. And we will get into that as we talk about our cast more, but uh, he needed a place where she could live on site and not to be driven back and forth. Oh, okay. So they needed to go somewhere where they could just film and get it done. Okay. Fun story is that hotel was where L. Frank Baum wrote The Wonderful Wizard of Oz in 1900 and was reportedly where Edward VIII met noted Nazi and fascist enabler Wallace Simpson. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Billy Wilder also stands as the only man to ever mock MCA, the Music Corporation of America, in any form of pop culture, as Joe and Jerry walk into MCA offices staffed by a single woman at a desk drinking from a bottle. Oh, God. <laughs> That's amazing. He would take shots at literally anyone. And that includes some of the biggest people in the industry. Wow. The last door they open in that scene is for Jules Stein, president of the music company and who they're trying to get a job from. Jules Stein was the actual founder of MCA and a fellow card player with Billy. Mm -hmm. That's why he could get away with it. He was friends with everyone. Finally, Wilder included a few blasts of steam from the train as Sugarcane hurries on board suspiciously near her hips, a very likely nod to the subway great scene from the seven-year itch. And speaking of that film and moving into our cast, we start with one Marilyn Monroe playing Sugar Cane. Kowalczyk. Mm. We talked about her for the seven-year itch. What do we think of Marilyn in this film? I think this is the best she's ever looked, like, on film. I mean, I've never seen Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and that has the whole Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend bit. Same. Like, I've I've never seen that either, but I've, I've seen that sequence, and I'm like, no. Here she looks beautiful. Like, she's sexy, because she's always sexy, but she looks beautiful. She just, yeah, she just, yeah. Well, that whole scene that she has with Shell Oil Jr., mm-hmm. where at once it goes on for a while to a point where it's like, this feels kind of awkward, but she's so fucking hot in that scene mm-hmm. that it really doesn't matter. Yeah, like, eh, I don't give a shit. And, and not hot in that way of like, she's being made movie hot because, you know, she has to be. It's like, no, no, no. She's just purely that attractive mm-hmm. and sexy in that moment. Yeah. And it's all while being very grounded because I love the fact that she's like, I'm going to marry a rich man, but she actually falls in love with the rich man. Yeah. And you're seeing that from her. You're seeing all those levels of her. She is playing the airhead in this movie. Yes. But she's playing the airhead to prove the point that the airhead has a whole lot of depth involved. Yeah, she's really good. I would love to see so much more of her with Billy. But of course, that was not to be. No. Marilyn did not want the role at first. Quote, I don't want to play someone who can't tell Daphne and Josephine are really men dressed in drag. Unquote. Mm. However, she had written to Billy in 1957, hoping to work with him again. And this was an opportunity. And she made it worth her while because she got 10% of the gross. Oh, yeah. That definitely makes it worth your while. <laughs> this woman made $5 million fucking dollars in 1959 money. Yeah. That's, that's not bad at all. However, this was very much the beginning of the huge decline for Marilyn. Mm. And it's rough. Uh, her onset behavior was less than stellar. She flubbed almost every take. So if, if some of the stuff was bad with the seven-year itch, it was really bad here. Per Tony Curtis, she was regularly two to three hours late. She sometimes refused to leave the dressing room. To get the line, it's me, sugar, she had to take 47 different takes. Mm. She kept saying, quote, sugar, it's me, or quote, it's sugar, me. After take 30, Billy had the line written on a blackboard for her to read. Wow. And if you watch carefully, you can see her eyes scanning to read her line. Mm. Another line had her rummaging through drawers saying, where's the bourbon? After 40 takes of saying, where's the whiskey, where's the bottle, and where's the bonbon, Wilder glued the line into a drawer. When Monroe got confused about which drawer the line was in, Wilder then put it in every single drawer. 
The scene took 59 takes, and the final cut has her back to the camera, leading some to believe that at a certain point, Wilder gave up and just let her dub it later. Yeah. And in the farewell phone conversation, you can see her eyes directly moving side to side. Mm-hmm. It's rough. And it's a testament to how great an actress she is that you don't really notice any of that at all. Yeah. I mean, her performance is still incredibly stellar. But it was a rough go to getting her through this movie. Yeah. Um, again, one of the reasons why Billy was like, she has to be on site because yeah. we cannot deal with transporting her back and forth. Despite all of these issues, Jack Lemon said he loved working with Marilyn Monroe and completely forgave her for any of the issues. And there's lots of publicity stills of the two of them, like hamming it up and having fun while they're waiting for the next take. Yeah. So I think genuinely they... They never had a romance, to my knowledge, but they were just very friendly. Lemon said that he believed Monroe could not go on camera until she was completely ready. Quote, she knew she was limited and goddamned well knew what was right for Marilyn. She wasn't about to do anything else. Unquote. No. Lemon said he knew she might not have been one of the most talented or greatest performers of all time, but she used more of her talent and brought more of her abilities to screen than anyone he knew. In other words, he thought she gave it everything she had. That's cool. And Lemon also noted that there was one scene that Marilyn got in one take, when Sugar gets in bed with Jerry on the sleeper train. Mm. And I think that's absolutely accurate. Like, I think that is the story of Marilyn Monroe in a nutshell. Hmm. It's that she may never have been the strongest performer of her age. She might not have been, you know, the the absolute quintessential actress, but she knew what she was able to do and mm-hmm. she could give a hundred percent commitment to that. Yeah. And it's a shame because so many people refuse to see that in her. In fact, other than Jack quoting this and working with her, I feel like Billy was one of the few people who understood that about her. Mm. Now The biggest issue here was for Billy, because Billy has to make a movie. Per him, quote, we were in mid-flight, and that was a nut on the plane, unquote. Monroe was lashing out from insecurities, and the disruption caused Wilder so much stress, he reportedly took suppository sedatives so that he could sleep at night. Wow. After shooting, Wilder threw a celebration dinner for cast and friends. Monroe was not invited. Interesting. She was incredibly crushed, because she loved Billy. Mm Mm-hmm. And when trying to inquire about what would have made him do this, she had to be told her delays in behavior were what cost around half a million dollars in budget. Mm -hmm. The severe delays came from her, mostly. Wilder was also not the nicest in the press. When asked if he'd film with her again, he replied, quote, My doctor and my psychiatrist tell me I'm too old and too rich to go through this again, unquote. Mm -hmm. Monroe read this in print, called his home, and told Billy's wife, Audrey, to give him the message, quote, to go fuck himself, unquote. Okay, good for you, Marilyn. Wilder would later soften. He said, quote, it takes a real artist to come on set, not know her lines, and yet give the performance she did, unquote. That's a little Billy side side eye sarcasm, but that's what he does. Mm Mm-hmm. The next year, at the premiere of The Apartment, Monroe hugged him publicly, telling him how much she loved the movie, and reportedly whispered that she wanted the lead in his next picture. Aww, that's sweet. Again, everything I've ever seen between these two is like, look, this was rough. This was really hard for Billy. Mm -hmm. Because he's like, I have to make a fucking movie. Mm -hmm. But he loved her. Yeah. He really did. Mm -hmm. There was every indication. Other fun note, Monroe, per usual agreement, wanted to film in color, because that's what she wants. However, Wilder convinced her not to do it by showing her co-star's makeup had a green tinge while showing them in color on camera. Oh, interesting. So instead, they had to go black and white. Now, we do have a who could have been better. Mitzi Gaynor, who starred in There's No Business Like Show Business, Lay Girls, and South Pacific. Monroe was obviously a bigger star, and Wilder wanted to work with her for the role. But Gaynor was reportedly standing by in case at any point Marilyn could not continue filming. Mm. It it was that rough. I I mean, I understand. Yeah. And again, it just goes to show what a really good performance it is, because unless you're looking for it, you don't notice. Yeah. And it's there. But it's just like, damn, the woman was so talented. She 
she she yeah. deserved a chance to have an actual life and career with people who like cared about her. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to happier stories. Okay, we start with Tony Curtis playing Joe slash Josephine slash Shell Oil Junior. Mm-hmm. Before this, he was in Sierra, Winchester 73, Houdini, All-American, So This Is Paris, Trapeze, The Rawhide Years, Mr. Corey, Sweet Smell of Success, Kings Go Forth, and The Defiant Ones. After this, he was in Operation Petticoat, Spartacus, The Great Imposter, The Outsider, The List of Adrian Messenger, The Great Race, Boeing Boeing, The Boston Strangler, Suppose They Gave a War and Nobody Came, The Last Tycoon, Vegas on TV, and a bunch of just random small appearances. And then, of course, I noted that he was in a musical version of this movie. He played Osgood Fielding III. He got to give the final button line. It was awesome. Love it. Didn't know who the hell he was until everybody clapped and I looked at the program. And then I was like, oh, oh shit, that guy. He was in the movie. Mm-hmm. What do we think of Tony Curtis in this movie? He's great. I can tell he is not have like it. I feel like he's not having as much fun. He's definitely the more uptight character. And I think that's appropriate. I mean, yeah, it's just he's great because he's uptight, but there it's because mostly because he's worried and then he's trying to juggle all these different emotions and uh, situations he's trying to navigate. And I just he's great. Like uh, I I he never comes off as cheesy or phoning it in. And I think this is the first time I've ever seen a Tony Curtis film. Part of it, too, is Tony had one of the very classic late 50s heartthrob feminine looks. Mm-hmm. He's one of those very sweet, tender-faced actors. And it's interesting because he was never a super masculine guy, mm-hmm. um, just appearing on screen. It's interesting that you note, because I'm going to get into the trivia, but you're right. Not only is Joe not having a good time, Tony Curtis was not enjoying this process yeah and it wasn't because of anything bad it was just that tony curtis as a person seemed to maybe have a lot of his own baggage that he's bringing to a lot of stuff sure but that played perfectly for this character he's a straight man Mm -hmm. in a comedy duo Mm -hmm. that is also just as if not more neurotic than his comedic partner sure that makes it fascinating Mm mm-hmm Typically, you know, you got an Abbott Costello. Abbott's just a very cool guy and just gets angry and upset. These two, they both have their own weird stuff going on. (laughs) And it makes it really funny. And Joe, Joe gets to play that up because he is desperately falling in love with this woman. Mm -hmm. And he thinks he might just like, she's just so attractive. I have to be with her. And then very quickly, he's like, no, I'm fully in fucking love with her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and and then you have the whole complication of I'm totally in love with her. And yet if I tell her that I'm in love with her, now I have exposed myself and I'm going to get murdered by Spats Columbo. Yeah. Weird time for this guy. And like, he's also the one who is the most just like, we have to be in control. We have to follow the rules. We have to follow mm-hmm. the rules until sugar comes along. Yeah. I don't know. He he's so hung up on a whole bunch of different stuff that it makes for a fun contrast and compare between the two instead mm-hmm. of a very normal stereotypical one. And I think a lot of that is just Tony Curtis. Yes. Wilder had seen him play Harry Houdini okay. and he thought he'd be perfect for Joe. Quote, I was sure Tony was right for it because he was quite handsome. And when he tells Marilyn Monroe that he's one of the Shell Oil family, she has to be able to believe it. Unquote. Mm. I buy it. Yeah. I mean, pick between Tony Curtis and Jack Lemon. Tony Curtis is the guy who's going to be from a rich billionaire family. I'm sorry, Jack Lemon. <laughs> Curtis never loved his performance. And there were probably a few different reasons. The biggest one he cited was that because Marilyn needed so many takes. Mm-hmm his performance would start to deteriorate. Okay. In fact, Billy wound up using more footage of Marilyn and had to cut a lot of stuff of Curtis out of necessity so that he could get her take. Mm-hmm. And so Tony Tony always felt like the further we kept going, the more I kept second guessing what the fuck I was doing. Yeah. I didn't feel committed ever. Curtis based Josephine on three different women, Grace Kelly, Eve Arden, and his mother. Okay. Cute. Curtis asked Wilder if he could imitate Cary Grant for the Shell Oil Jr. bit. Wilder thought it was so funny, and they shot it that way. It's a really, it's a really bad, but very funny Cary Grant impression. I do like that. Haven't I 
I seen you somewhere before? Not very likely. Did you stay at the hotel? Not at all. The face is familiar. Possible you've seen it in the newspapers or magazines, um, Vanity Fair. That must be it. Would you mind moving just a little, please? You're blocking my view. Your view of what? They run up a red and white flag on the up when it's time for cocktail. You own a yacht? Which one is it? The big one? Certainly not. With all the unrest in the world, I don't think anybody should have a yacht that sleeps more than 12. Cary Grant, upon seeing the film, said, as a joke, quote, I don't talk like that, unquote. That's very funny. I'm glad he had a sense of humor about himself. That's important. Now, the other things that may show why Tony Curtis had issues is that for many years up until making this movie, Tony Curtis went to analysis, aka psychotherapy, up to four times a week. Mm. He was dealing with undisclosed mental health issues. And when it came time to appear and drag on set the first time, Jack Lemmon had to take him by the hand and drag him from his dressing room. Wow. He was so uptight and nervous about doing it. And I think it came, from what I can tell, it didn't come from him like being uncomfortable in drag. It came from him feeling like he wasn't going to be able to do it well mm-hmm. and be convincing. And that's, that's the, I think, the interesting part. And again, it plays to him being uptight through the whole fucking movie because Tony Curtis was really fucking uptight as a person. Sure. In a later interview, Curtis was asked why Josephine seemed more feminine than Daphne. And Curtis said that he thought because he was scared in being convincing in his drag, he tensed his body and then his body language read as demure and shy, which to audiences would read more feminine. Hmm. Instead, he said his co-star Jack Lemmon was completely unbothered and, quote, ran out of his dressing room screaming like the Queen of the May, unquote. And that leads us to one Jack Lemmon. Oh, jeez. Playing Jerry and Daphne. He's a two-timer on the show, once for the apartment, once for missing. <laughs> totally oh, yeah. left field. He's a genius. He's a legend. My God, he's so fucking funny in this movie. That is pretty funny. This is one of the best comedic performances I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It's just this. I don't know what else to say about like he somehow because one of Jack's special talents is that he is such a great physical comedian. Mm-hmm. But also the thing that's really great in his most recognizable roles is he's also an incredible interpreter of the script. Mm-hmm. He can give a line delivery like nobody's business. Like the way he says, it's like they're a whole different sex. Just the exact way he delivers that line makes it eight times funnier than it would have been from any other actor. Mm-hmm. Because he's saying it while completely dressed up as a woman, while trying to walk and be convincing, mm-hmm. while trying to find his ticket for the train. Oh, yeah. He's got so much going on, and he's nailing every single moment of it. And then his whole identity crisis at the end of the movie, like the cut scenes at the tango where we're like, we're going on and on with the sugar and and shell oil junior bit and then we cut back to jerry and osgood and like he at first he doesn't want to dance and then he's totally into it yeah and all of a sudden you're like whoa some change for daphne he's he's probably the greatest actor of all time to committing to the bit and he's fully committed to the bit here he's just having the best time and he's he's just precious he's so precious he almost didn't get this role. Hmm. When Wilder cast Tony Curtis, United Artists wanted a bigger star than Jack Lemon for the second lead. Okay. It wasn't until they decided to cast Marilyn Monroe with the huge box office name that they, he was able to get Jack Lemon. Mm-hmm. But he didn't want anybody else. He wanted somebody who was this good at comedy. There were some who could have been betters. Okay. Jerry Lewis. Oh, interesting. He and his wife were best friends with power couple Tony Curtis and Janet Lee. Mm-hmm. But Jerry didn't want to do drag, so he turned it down. Okay. Lewis later claimed that Jack Lemon sent him chocolates every year to thank him for turning it down. Oh, interesting. And Jerry has gone on record as saying he regretted not taking the role because... Oh. Yeah. Okay. Can you imagine a world in which Jerry Lewis was less famous for, like, The Nutty Professor and more famous for this? Hmm. He'd be just as good at it. But I don't, uh, he'd be great at the physical comedy, but then there's the line part of it. Mm -hmm. 
the words are so crucial to this movie. The dialogue is it packs as much punch as the physical comedy. Mm. And honestly, Jack's the only guy. Let's talk about again who could have been better, Frank Sinatra. Oh no, for Jerry? No, I'm I'm just thinking about it and just I get it, but no. He would have been a really fun Spats Columbo. Yes. He would have been so fun. He would have never done it because he hated the stereotype, but mm-hmm. God, he would have been so fucking good as Spats. That would have been really good. And funny. Um, however, Frank didn't show for a lunch date to talk with Billy about the movie, so no role for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, Anthony Perkins, a.k.a. Norman Bates, oh. was potential for this role. Okay. I mean, no. I love Anthony Perkins, but no. Jack Lemon all mm-hmm. day. It's an iconic performance. Also, a duo who could have been better for these two, because we're wrapping this up. How about in an earlier iteration, Danny Kay playing the Jerry role and Bob Hope playing the Joe role? Oh, that could have been fun. If they were a little bit younger. 1959, I don't feel like you can do it. I think since both, like, I think together they're both, it feels like they're both really similar. It would be okay. Maybe. But you make this movie in like 19... 19- 49? Mm-hmm. I'm all in. Yeah. Although, give me Gene Kelly instead of Bob Hope. I do love a Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly, Danny Kay, Jerry and Joe. Oh, and see, yeah. and in this movie, it would make sense for him to dance. Uh-huh. Right? Anyway. Finally, for our main cast, we have to mention George Raft playing Spats Columbo. Mm. Before this, he was in Gold Diggers of Broadway, Scarface in 1932, If I Had a Million, Midnight Club, Bolero, I Stole a Million, Broadway, Stage Door, Canteen, Knob Hill, Johnny Angel, Whistle Stop, Nocturne, The Man from Cairo, and A Bullet for Joey. After this, he was in Ocean's Eleven in 1960. He was in Casino Royale in 1967 and Skidoo. He was also up for the role of Walter Neff in Double Indemnity. He was a who could have been better. Mm. What do we think of George Raft in this movie? Um, He's fine. I don't think he's anything special. So uh, this is a bit of stunt casting, honestly. Okay. This is why I think Frank Sinatra might work better for us as spats mm-hmm. because like Frank resonates to that for us more. George Raft was an all-time 30s gangster guy. Next to Edward G. Robinson and James Cagney, like George Raft was one of your go-to 1930s gangster stars. Mm-hmm. And his signature move was he tossed the coin in one hand while looking at the camera. So if you've ever seen parodies of that in cartoons and stuff, that was all based off of George Raft. So there's a lot of the like he's a he's a perfectly fine actor, but I think a lot of this is audiences in 1959 being like, oh, my God, it's the gangster guy and he's being Mm -hmm. a gangster in this really ridiculous movie. (laughs) It's one piece of stunt casting that I don't think resonates quite as well for us now. Mm. However, the movie does a great joke on that when Spatz walks up to a young hood flipping a coin and eventually he comes back to a man and's like, where'd you learn a cheap trick like that? Mm hmm. All right, let's move to Arpons. Random people of note. We have Pat O'Brien playing Detective Mulligan, known as Hollywood's Irishman in residence. He was good friends with fellow Irishman James Cagney. Joe E. Brown playing Osgood Fielding III. He was a longtime vaudeville comedian who started all the way back in the silent era because you see that grin. He's got a mouth and a face for it. He kept going all the way through the 50s and 60s. He was also in Showboat. It's a mad, 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 mad world and around the world in 80 days. Okay. Nehemiah Persoff playing Little Bonaparte. He was the voice of Papa Mouskowitz in An American Tale. Aww. Joan Shawley playing Sweet Sue, the leader of the band. She was Sylvie, the main switchboard operator and the boss's secretary in The Apartment. Mm, okay. George E. Stone playing Toothpick Charlie. He was Society Max in Guys and Dolls. He was one of those stereotypical hood who was a friend of Damon Runyon, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Dave Barry playing Beanstalk. He was a longtime comedian who appeared in numerous talk shows and stand-up. He was the protege of Eddie Cantor, and he was also the train announcer for all of the train and tram announcements for Disney at their theme parks for a long time. Okay. So if you ever went back there in like the 70s or 80s, you heard Dave Barry's voice. Cool. Edward G. Robinson Jr. playing Johnny Paradise. He is the young hood who gets talked down to by Spatz. That is the son of screen legend Edward G. Robinson. He never really took off himself. Robinson was offered the role of Little Bonaparte, but he refused to work with George Raft after they had a fist fight when Raft spun him around too hard while filming. (laughs) 
Great. Ted Christie playing a gangster. He was a longtime wrestling heavy with his brother, Vic Christie. He almost played a little henchman guy to make the talent look good and be a big guy. Paul Fries playing the funeral director and speakeasy waiter. He was the voice of Ludwig von Drake, Boris Badenov from Brocky and Bullwinkle, and the original Pillsbury Doughboy. Mm. Also, because Curtis had issues maintaining the falsetto of Josephine's voice, it was a modulated blend of Tony Curtis and Paul Freese. Mm. And finally, Grace Lee Whitney playing Rosella. She was an original cast member of Star Trek. Uh, she was n- known on that show as Janice Rand. She reprised the role in all of the original six films. Okay. And that leads us over to awards. Awards? This film was nominated for six Academy Awards. It only won one. It won Best Costume Design, Black and White, by Ori Kelly, who also designed for An American in Paris, Casablanca, and the Maltese Falcon. Mm -hmm. Also, the form-fitting dress for the first show night in Florida is a precursor to the gown that Marilyn wore to serenade President John F. Kennedy three years later at Madison Square Garden. Mm. It was nominated for Best Black and White Art Set Decoration, Best Black and White Cinematography, Best Adapted Screenplay for Billy and I.A.L. Diamond, Best Actor for Jack Lemmon, mm-hmm. and Best Director for Billy Wilder. Okay. And that will lead us to trivia. Trivia. Curtis and Lemon worked with a male cabaret dancer, Barbette, to learn how to walk in heels. Mm-hmm. After about a week, Lemon declined to get any more help. He didn't want to walk like a woman. He wanted to walk like a man trying to walk like a woman. Okay. Bless you, Jack Lemon. You weirdo. When Curtis and Lemon first put on makeup and costumes, they walk around Goldwyn Studios to try and somehow pass. Saw this with Tootsie. Then they tried to use mirrors in a public ladies' room to fix their makeup. When no one complained, they were convinced that they could pull it off. Okay. I don't love that. Okay. I don't I don't love using the public ladies' room, but you know. Maybe if there was like a just a powder room. I don't know, guys. It's not good. On its original release, the state of Kansas banned the film, explaining that cross-dressing was, quote, too disturbing for Kansas, unquote. Okay. The Roman Catholic Church Legion of Decency, what a fucking name, Mm. rated the film, quote, B, morally objectionable in part for all, unquote. Y'all are missing a really fun movie. That's all I can tell you. Yep. According to Lemon, it was George Raft who spent hours teaching him and Joe E. Brown how to tango on screen. So the gangster had to teach the old guy and Jack Lemon how to tango. Jeez. After the massacre, Spatz was supposed to kick the toothpick from Toothpick Charlie's mouth. However, George Raft was afraid he'd miss and kick actor Georgie Stone in the head. Hmm. So because he was afraid, he was continually missing his target. And after 10 takes, the now pretty frustrated Billy went to show how Raft to do it, only to kick Georgie Stone in the head. Mm. Raft then proposed that they replace the target with something easier, so they painted a nail to look like a toothpick. Give him something a little bigger, Raft got it on the first take. Mm. Hmm. Sometimes you just gotta make the target a tiny bit bigger. Mm -hmm. Daphne's wheezy, maniacal laughter around sugar is the same laugh that Osgood gives Daphne when he's around her. The passenger car used in the film is now located at the Tennessee Valley Railroad Museum in Chattanooga and can be used for small trips on the railroad. Okay. Osgood Fielding's yacht, the Caledonia 2, featured the 120-foot luxury yacht Lovely Lady for its exteriors. Mm-hmm. That yacht was originally christened the Tara and was a wooden yacht designed and built in 1930. And after a 1930 refit, it was renamed the Norma Jean and was made available for charter out of Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, Sadly, it would sink in the south branch of the Miami River in 2009. Mm. But uh, that's very sweet. They renamed it for Marilyn. I like it. While filming the long takes where Marilyn would flub lines, Curtis and Lemon were forced to stand on screen in their heels, which was not comfortable for them because they weren't used to wearing them. Mm. So the second Billy yelled cut, they kicked them off their feet and ran to soak their feet to relieve the pain. That's awful. <laughs> Can you imagine just watching these two, one of them being a massive dork, just like standing there being like, ow, 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 cut. Oh my God. The indoor scenes for this film were shot next door to the set for Otto Preminger's Porgy and Bess, 
and Sammy Davis Jr., Sidney Poitier, and Dorothy Dandridge were frequent visitors to the set. And finally, in 2008, a man found a black dress in his closet and brought it to appraisers on Antiques Roadshow. The dress was one of the pieces Marilyn Monroe had been sewn into for this film and was estimated to be worth $250,000. I'm impressed that a movie of this caliber and notability had something that some guy found in his attic. And that leads us to ratings. Oh, ratings. For every film, we have a specific rating system. For this one, uh, are we going to go tenor sax? Sure. I mean, I'm trying to think of a better one. Yeah, I can't. Do you just want to do Jack Lemons and move on with our lives? Because, I mean, how many Daphnes? No. We'll just do tenor saxes. I never liked that name anyway. This is my movie. It's my ratings. I can't give it any lower than a five. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best comedies ever made. It's still so funny. It still holds up. It's such a unique telling of a pretty standard story. Mm-hmm. But like Billy, both in the way he directs it and the way he writes it, is doing every single thing he can to try to flip those ideas on their head. And it's a movie that, you know, for a long time before and after was going to be really hard to make. He somehow found the right moment to squeeze this movie in. And it's got phenomenal performances. It's ridiculously well written the jokes are just some of the best and it's also like on the bucket list for almost every movie going person you kind of have to see it the good news is it's also that good five stars cool uh yeah i gotta go five stars like there's nothing i would change it's entertaining it's funny it's a little unexpected it's got a perfect button like it runs like slight like maybe a tad long but like not in a way that i was mad about like we have been with some other movies yeah it's great Woohoo! it's not the apartment no I won't give it that it doesn't have the same charm no of the apartment but it damn is, is it funny it is funny and that means we only have one more movie in this series oh really though to be fair there are still lots of billy movies out there to mm-hmm. watch but we are going to wrap things up by reteaming our apartment co stars mm-hmm. for a totally different story about the red light district of Perry. Because we are going to watch 1963's Irma Ladus. I know nothing about this movie other than Jack Lemon, Shirley MacLaine, and Billy Wilder. Honestly, that's enough to get me in the door. Yeah, I don't have anything else. So, I don't know. Hopefully it holds up. That's I I was worried about a lot of these movies and mm-hmm. I've been pleasantly surprised so far. So, until next time, have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.